This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Forever. Dog. Comic books, comic time, writers and artists are on the line. They make a splash as a comic's read, and take us on a trip behind the spread. Watch out for comic book commentary. Spinning or winning inside, fix how they got a hot idea. Narrative, character, visual tricks, and onomatopoeia. Uh-huh, it's comic book commentary. Hi, I'm David Pepos, the writer of Spencer and Locke 2 over at Action Lab Comics, and I'm coming to you with uh, some comic book commentary on our first issue, which uh, should be in stores by now. It'll be uh, in there on April 24th. So, for those who haven't read the original Spencer and Locke, the easy elevator pitch is, what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City? It's about a hard-boiled detective, uh, Locke, whose uh, partner is his childhood imaginary friend, a seven-foot-tall blue panther named Spencer. Uh, Over the course of our original series, uh, Locke and Spencer went back to their old neighborhood, uh, sort of the site of Locke's deeply traumatizing and abusive childhood, and uh, to investigate the murder of Locke's childhood sweetheart, Sophie Jenkins. And uh, any fans of uh, classic Bill Watterson or Frank Miller will uh, recognize a lot of the Easter eggs that we threw into our first volume. Um, But, uh, you know, through the course of this return home, Locke has learned some uh, very uh, disturbing things that have kind of shaken him to the core. Um, He's learned that he's actually the father of Sophie's young daughter, Hero, but he's also discovered that Sophie was uh, a drug courier who was killed uh, by her her employer, Principal Scabtree, after uh, her side business was discovered at the local school. So... We open up uh, Spencer and Locke 2, though, with our uh, our new riff on our high concept, uh, which is no comic strip is safe. If our first series was sort of our pitch black parody of Calvin and Hobbes, we're going full fables across the funny pages with volume two, hard-boiled Calvin and Hobbes versus hardcore Beetle Bailey, or in our sense, our analog's name is Roach Riley. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll get started with our first page where uh, we, just like in volume one where we started off with a Bill Watterson-style flashback, we're uh, now doing a tip of the hat to Beetle Bailey creator Mort Walker. We see uh, Roach Riley just hanging out on base, sleeping outside of a tent, and uh, his superior major is not too happy about it. He says, Roach, you were supposed to be on KP duty an hour ago. Now, why don't I see you peeling potatoes, Private? And uh, Roach has a little bit of a a smart-ass response to it. And uh, as most people who have read Beetle Bailey know, that's usually when uh, his uh, superior officers beat the crap out of him. Unfortunately, we're not letting Roach off that easily as we see a rocket uh, uh, fly in and just uh, tear the base to hell. Um, Roach wakes up and he sees Major's entrails all over him. And uh, he sees the entire base being overrun by enemy combatants. Uh, We hear a radio saying, base, do you copy? We have major casualties and request immediate evac. Can anybody hear me? And then we cut to black. Uh, And uh, that's when we cut to the modern day. Uh, 
if those who read the original Spencer and Locke know that we this is a trick that we pulled in our original first issue, uh, where we saw uh, young Locke's uh, young Locke uh, be abused by his his uh, alcoholic mother, before we cut to a crime scene. Here we're kind of inverting the focus. Uh, we have uh, three panels just quickly showing the crime scene. Uh, we see a roach crawling up towards a puddle of blood before it crawls on. A man's face, uh, we see he's been shot through the forehead with a sniper rifle. And that's when we see Roach, uh, bigger and badder and scarier than ever, standing on a rooftop with a sniper rifle in his hands. He says, war, they say it changes people, but they're wrong. War doesn't change anyone. It just shows what we are underneath. And I think that's a theme that we're really going to be playing a lot with in Spencer and Locke, too. Uh, sort of this idea of childhood trauma and, and, and pain and suffering. Does it change who we are or is it, does it just reveal who we are uh, all along? Uh, and that's when we cut to another scene. Uh, we see a Rorschach test and a voice saying, tell me what you see. And we see a flashback of Locke's mother uh, winding up to, to throw a punch at us. And we just see a mouth that says home. We see Locke's father, Augustus, uh, his glasses breaking apart as he's been shot in the head at the end of our first volume. And this, we see another Rorschach test. Family. We see a, a scarred eye. And what about this? Another Rorschach card. What do you see here? And we see Sophie Jenkins's corpse in the alleyway. Nothing. I see nothing at all. And uh, that's when we start to lean into a little bit of the exposition from our first arc. We see that we're talking to a psychiatrist um, who's supposed to be based on, uh, on Lucy from Peanuts. Uh, you're going to have to do better than that if you ever want to see your badge again, because a catastrophic car chase in a warehouse full of dead criminals doesn't look good for a custody hearing, let alone internal affairs. And this is something that I thought was very important for us to do in our second arc. Um, there's a lot of action tropes that we introduced in our first volume that I think a lot of people uh, took at face value. But that's a lot of what our second series is about, is uh, sort of taking these things that we take for granted and kind of turning on them and interrogating them and subverting them. Because you don't leave a, a body count like Spencer and Locke did without somebody calling you to account for it. As we see in our, our, next, our next panel, we see a flashback from our third issue of Volume 1 with uh, Locke attacking somebody with a buzzsaw. Uh, and as we see, as we keep sort of skirting around who this character is who's being analyzed, he walks off and we see that there's a stuffed animal in his pocket. And the psychiatrist says, just answer me one thing. Why don't you at least call for backup? And that's when we get our really cool reveal of Spencer and Locke, uh, our first image of, of the two in our second arc, as Locke says, didn't need it. Uh, and we see Spencer, his seven foot tall uh, blue companion, crossing his arms in agreement behind him. Uh, you'll see here that uh, we also have the title of our first issue, which I have also sort of thought of as the title for our arc as well, Prisoners of War. And I, I think that's a really uh, important parallel between Locke and Roach, which is they both are sort of trapped in this kind of cycle of trauma and violence that they've had inflicted upon themselves. And then now they've chosen to inflict upon others, whether it's sort of in pursuit of justice or in pursuit of something a little more criminal. Uh, these are traps that these men are both trapped within. And... Uh, 
we're going to see sort of how these sort of beings of trauma kind of go head to head against one another. Uh, we cut then to uh, one of our, 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 our patented uh, uh, Calvin and Hobbes style flashbacks where we see young Spencer and Locke. And it's just our way of trying to add a little bit of levity to what may otherwise be a very kind of dark and bleak and oppressive storyline. We have uh, Locke say, uh, and Spencer looking up in the stars and Locke says, does it ever depress you to look up at the stars and realize how insignificant we are? To which Spencer responds, whenever that happens, I just remind myself we'll all be consumed by the sun sooner or later. Uh, Locke says, wow, leave it to a panther to make existential dread even more immediate. Uh, we, we cut back to uh, the adult Spencer and Locke in the present, uh, standing on a rooftop smoking cigarettes. Uh, Locke says, Spencer's been my best friend for as long as I can remember. Sure, he's a seven foot tall talking panther, but you got to try harder than that to raise an eyebrow in this town. Um, and this is where we sort of have uh, introduce a little bit of Spencer's point of view in the mix. Um, he says, do you know, you want to hear something I learned in the pyramids of Egypt? He says, the cats weren't domesticated then. We were worshipped, exalted by the pharaohs themselves. And you know why cats were so revered? Because we'd find the vermin and end them. We're, we're hunters, Locke. It's what we were born to do. We need to be back on the streets. And that's where we start to see that things have not been great for Spencer and Locke, um, you know, in addition to sort of being having their badges taken away, in addition to having their custody over their daughter being uh, in jeopardy. We realize that Locke's not in a very good headspace, and that's starting to curdle over a bit with his dynamic with his imaginary friend, which makes perfect sense. Spencer is a figment of Locke's imagination, and the the this once sort of cuddly, friendly uh, ego to Locke's id, he's not really kind of keeping the brakes on Locke's more violent urges anymore. Um, and so it's an interesting sort of counterpoint, whereas Locke used to be the guy who would sort of dive into the thick of things and Spencer would try to hold him back. Now Locke is in this unenviable position of saying, we have to stay low profile until the hearing. And But Spencer, you know, he's, he's very much Locke's innermost thoughts. And he says, you can lie to yourself, but you can't lie to me. You better do something soon because you're never going to get hero back if you fall apart at the seams. And that's where we meet uh, our, our latest supporting character in the series, um, Melinda Mercury, star reporter. And she's our riff on Dale Messick's uh, Brenda Starr, uh, another comic strip uh, heroine who um, – I think she is a very important part of our sequel. Uh, part of this is, you know, we we wanted to expand Spencer and Locke's world. That was the whole reason that we sort of expanded this concept across the funny pages. And rather than sort of the small, intimate family gathering of our first arc, which I think didn't particularly lend itself well to uh, to representation, or I should say representation without falling into stereotypes. Now that we have a much larger cast to play with, I thought it was really important to have um, a woman and a person of color play a, a very important role in this. And uh, as we'll see in this series, Melinda, you know, as a reporter, it's always a bad idea for reporters and cops to date. Um you know, there's a lot of sort of riskiness at play, which I think makes sense given Locke's inability to make good decisions for himself. But as you'll see, they share a very similar skill set. Uh, they're both detectives in a way, and you're going to see their parallel investigations into the Roach-Riley case and uh, how they come together in some very interesting ways. But as we see from Locke, 
also Melinda has been a, sort of another stabilizing force for him in a time that's been particularly unstable. She's been good to me, better than I deserve, Locke says. Just two lost souls drifting through the darkness. I want to tell her everything, he says, as he holds the Spencer doll. But we all have our secrets. And uh, that's sort of, you know, that's going to be something that, that, that we play upon a bit in this series, which is Locke is, you know, his, his invention of Spencer was kind of his way of dealing with his childhood traumas. It's a coping mechanism, but I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as the healthiest of coping mechanisms. And his, and his way of sort of, uh, you know, cordoning off his relationship with Spencer at the cost of everything else, that's something that's going to really have some serious repercussions down the line. But before we stick around too long with Locke, we cut back into the city where we see Roach walking through uh, a particularly seedy part of town. Uh, when I was talking with artist Jorge Santiago Jr., we were uh, referring uh, a lot to uh, Batman Year One and The Dark Knight Returns uh, for these sort of city scenes. And uh, you can see kind of that uh, Frank Miller uh, homage as we see Roach walking down the sidewalk with a, a mysterious looking box. Uh, he says, I've seen things. Uh, um, but no matter where I was, I always missed this. The lights, the noise, the excitement. I always missed the city. And we see Roach kind of walk his way through a particularly seedy kind of uh, brothel where we have uh, probably my favorite uh, comic strip cameo uh, in our first issue. We, uh, if uh, Apologies to Olivia James now. If 2018 was the year of... Uh, of uh, Nancy, uh, 2019 is the year of BDSM Nancy. And so we see uh, BDSM Nancy and Sluggo uh, getting interrupted in the act, uh, in the act, poor Sluggo with a ball gag in his mouth before uh, Roach pulls out a shotgun and shoots him in the face. Um, Another cool little uh, stylistic trick that we have in here, uh, which I also sort of have borrowed off of Frank Miller, we have all these uh, little uh, radio uh, broadcasts going on in the background. It's just our way of trying to uh, lend a little bit of, of a mood for the city uh, itself as an environment. Um, and also is kind of playing up uh, something that's going on in the background, which is there's a, an election season going on. And that's something that's going to sort of pay off uh, a bit later in our series. But it, we're just showing that our city, even the city itself, is is going through a period of change. And I think that makes it even particularly more vulnerable to, uh, you know, a, a terrorist like Roach. Uh, and as we'll see uh, on the next page, our big splash page of Roach Riley. It's uh, probably one of my favorite things that Jorge has drawn the entire arc. Um, as he says, there's no place like home uh, as he walks away from the burning building with uh, Nancy and Sluggo's corpses inside. So uh, as they say, Sluggo is lit. Uh, he is definitely, definitely lit. Um and uh, that's when we cut to uh, one of our fantasy sequences. Um, just like uh, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, you know, Calvin would always sort of have these weird dreams where he would turn into a bug or he would become Cubist or he would become Spaceman Spiff. Um, I always really liked that. It sort of tied into his overactive imagination, which we've translated as Locke's uh, increasingly debilitating mental illness. Uh, he wakes, Locke wakes up one morning to discover he's turned into a human cockroach. Skittering on all fours, this hideous vermin now only craves garbage for his sustenance. But as we see, a military-looking boot is about to crash down on him. And as he asks, is this the end for this Kafkaesque horror? And uh, that's sort of our way of... of 
diving into Locke's mental state a little bit. He's uh, more self-loathing than ever. And uh, the thing that I've said in, in various interviews is it's because uh, Locke, he faced a lot of the tormentors of his past in our first arc. And he doesn't feel any better. Um, it's sort of a very existential crisis for these characters because he's learning that catharsis doesn't come from the end of a gun. Um, and if anything, sort of that cycle of violence has only made him feel worse about himself. It makes him feel less than human, uh, like an insect. Uh, he wakes up, though, and we see that he's, uh, he's uh, still being visited by Melinda. Uh, but the phone rings and she says, Locke, it's the city comptroller's office. They say they want you. And the way that we end this page is we have uh, two panels, one with Locke and part of his head, his face kind of cut through. And then we see next to him the Spencer doll kind of staring ominously at him. And that's when we cut to our latest comic strip cameo. Uh, Hal and Lana Forrester have always been in the public eye. Uh, she, he's the city's comptroller. She's the city's leading philanthropist. And I, these are our analogs for, uh, for High and Lois, uh, another uh, uh, set of characters by Beetle Bailey creator Mort Walker. And uh, this was sort of our way of, of trying to add, you know, to keep building up upon this city, um, you know, as opposed to sort of having uh, the traditional femme fatale, uh, you know, walking into a PI's office and saying, I need your help. Uh, these are more moneyed politicians who uh, they, they have, they, 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 are worried about um, the body count that Roach has been leaving in his wake. Um, they know there's a killer on the loose and that he's been killing city officials. Uh, they've had two now deaths that we've seen on uh, in the book. And Lana says, I think someone's going after public service and I want them caught before my husband is next. Uh but Locke, you know, he's 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 a guy who's playing things pretty close to the chest. And he says, I don't understand where I fit in with all this. I'm sure you know about my situation, that I'm on leave until my investigation clears. And that's when Lana pulls out her trump card, namely that she's brought Locke's daughter, Hero. Um, and this is sort of, uh, in, in certain ways, it's the ultimate carrot, but it's also the ultimate dirty pool. Um Hero is Locke's daughter. She was kidnapped in our first arc by um, by a drug uh, by a drug uh, organization, and uh, she and Locke uh, they're kind of each other's biggest cheerleaders. Um, you know, even though Locke is a profoundly damaged person, Hero sees the good in him, and uh, so they really inspire each other to kind of be the best versions of themselves that they can be. Uh, Locke refers to her as courageous, precocious, miraculous. She's the apple of my eye. And you can see that we're starting to see a little bit of light crack in, um, that both Spencer and Locke, you know, instinctively brighten up around her. Uh, but she's been in a foster home and she's sort of in limbo uh, in the same way that Locke's career is. And that's when Lana kind of sticks in the knife uh, saying, you know, we know all about your controversies and my husband and I are prepared to wipe the slate clean, full reinstatement and full custody of your daughter. What do you say? And poor Locke, um, you know, his interactions with Hero are amongst my favorite in the entire book. And he realizes that there's no shortcuts for something like this. Uh, he's made a promise to do this right. And as much as that breaks his heart, it means he has to do it alone. He walks out and says, uh, I'm not for sale. 
So we, uh, we, we cut back to uh, Spencer and Locke driving away, and you can see that their partnership is sort of sustaining a few more uh, little fractures over this. Um, clearly, Spencer uh, wants Hero back at all costs, and Locke is forced again to be thinking about the big picture, saying, uh, you know, Hero's too important. That means we play this by the book. That means no shortcuts and no strings. But we have, I think, a very important twist here, which Spencer says, oh, yeah, well, then why are we at the crime scene? And we realize that Locke has driven himself, driven them to the crime scene, even without thinking about it. Uh, He asks, how did we get here? And Spencer says, could be your intuition talking. Maybe you should just listen to it. And that's sort of our answer. You know, they, they say in, in, uh, in dramatic structure, there's sort of the hero refusing the call and then eventually, uh, you know, undergoing the journey. Uh, this was sort of our way of going about doing that here while further highlighting that Locke's mental state is really deteriorating by the day and that, you know, his, his conscious mind may be doing one thing, but his unconscious mind is sort of still pulling him into old habits and old directions. And that's why, uh, you know, we're at the crime scene and we st- we see a little bit of the beneficial side to Locke's uh, mental illness, namely that it's become so pronounced that he's able to actually hallucinate uh, sort of a crime scene model for himself. Uh, Spencer, you know, he, they see an actual hologram of the body being shot in real time. Um, you know, Spencer, who sort of represents Locke's animal intuition as a cop, he says, you know, blood splatter length suggests something high powered and uh, they see bullet fragments everywhere. And Spencer s- smells something weird and Locke realizes, is this is it pheromones? He puts a cup down on the floor and that's when we see the roach from our very first scene. Locke says, or, uh, Spencer asks him, what makes you say that? And Locke says, call it a hunch. Um, And it's just their way of, you know, these two detectives, even though one of them isn't real, it's sort of two different angles of one perhaps irrational mind trying to solve a problem and sort of taking these leaps in logic and creativity to to become a particularly effective cop, which is when when we cut to to the, uh, the landfill. Which I think is, is an important setting for a character like Roach. Uh, you know, roaches are attracted to, to dirt, to filth, to decay. And while most of our series has taken place in very metropolitan areas, we kind of wanted Spencer and Locke's first meeting with Roach to happen on his turf. Um, and as they walk in, they immediately see uh, there's there's already a corpse uh, strapped to a, ch- a chair and Locke is walking down the hallway, gun drawn with a, with a set of handcuffs in his hand. He says, stay sharp, Spence. Whoever did this could still be here. And at, he doesn't see it, but Roach is lurking behind the corner, just waiting for him. Uh, here we see uh, Roach just punch lock right in the face. And in sort of my favorite twist in this sequence, he actually cuffs lock with his own handcuffs to a railing. Roach says, please forgive the decor. I wasn't expecting guests. The name's Roach. Let me give you the royal welcome. And uh, this is where we we get into one of our our fun nine-panel grid uh, uh, fight sequences. We did this a few times in our first arc, and they were always very fun to draw. 
Um, a fun fact about uh, Spencer and Locke artist Jorge Santiago Jr. is uh, there are a lot of artists out there who would much rather have as many splash pages as possible, uh, sort of, you know, uh, really give their, their, their wrists time to breathe. Uh, Jorge is actually the exact opposite. You know, he's told me on several occasions that uh, throw as many panels at me as you want. The panel, the pages that are always toughest for him are splash pages. So uh, in this case, we sort of use that nine panel grid as a nice sense of rhythm. We see uh, Roach and Locke kind of fighting head to head and sort of, uh, you know, uh, a very one sided fight as Roach beats the crap out of him. Uh, but it's cut back with um, flashbacks, both of Spencer and Locke sparring with one another as children, but also seeing Roach and Major uh, fighting uh, back in the good old days before cutting to uh, Roach uh, cringing as he's got uh, – uh, Major's entrails splattered all over him. It's a very one-sided fight, though, and as you see, uh, Roach gets one good shot across Locke's nose, and he's down for the count. But this is where we go to probably my favorite scene in the whole book, or in the first issue, uh, which is where Roach shows that he's a little bit more than just an engine of destruction. He's just as smart as Locke, uh, which is particularly troubling. He says, hmm, I like that scar. Uh, referring to the scar across Locke's eyebrow. How'd you get it? Knife? Glass? Yeah, look how jagged it looks. Definitely a beer bottle. Old, too. You've been carrying that one a while. Who did this to you, Officer Locke? Was it Daddy? Was your Daddy a drunk? No. It was Mommy, wasn't it? And that was sort of our way of showing that, you know, Roach is kind of a connoisseur of pain in a lot of ways. And he's able to really kind of go back and just by seeing the scar and just by seeing the look on Locke's face as he breaks him down um, and sizes him up, he's able to really kind of pinpoint all of Locke's history and he knows exactly what he needs to know. Um, and it's something that Locke is not happy about. Um, he's not somebody who likes to be psychoanalyzed. He doesn't like to be probed. He certainly doesn't like people calling him out in his baggage. And so uh, he's, you know, he's got a knee on his chest and, and a hand cuffed to a railing, but he is pissed. Um, he is glaring at, at Roach. And it's very much sort of this idea of you get off my chest and I'll, I'll, I'll beat the hell out of you. And Roach says, I like you. You stand on ceremony. I think we're two of a kind. You're a survivor like me. And then he holds the Spencer doll in his hands. He says, the only problem is you're still incomplete. And that's when Roach breaks Spencer's arm. Uh, and that's kind of a, a, a cool sequence to me because so much of this book is about what's real and what isn't. And what does Locke consider to be real that we as the audience know is not? And so, by occasionally seeing things from Locke's perspective, in this case, uh, we see on the next page that Roach has only sort of torn the Spencer doll's arm. But seeing it from Locke's perspective and knowing what we know of Spencer as a character and how much time we've had to sort of uh, uh, fall in love with him, it's a really kind of a troubling moment uh, for this poor guy who's never done anything wrong. And it's the sort of thing that if you're ticked off about seeing this, imagine how Locke feels. Um, there's a, an intensity to Locke as a character that's always been very uh, attractive to me. And we get to see that here because he's so mad at what happened to Spencer, his friend, that he literally rips the railing out of the wall and takes a swing at Roach with, at it with like a baseball bat. 
Um, and it just goes to show that, you know, Spent or Locke is a, a kind of a small, scrappy character, especially alongside his seven foot tall, muscular friend. Um, but there's a deep strength inside of him that's kind of powered by rage and, and sorrow and trauma. And um, when you sort of push Locke past his line, um, there's very little he wouldn't do to, uh, to, to kick your ass. Unfortunately, um, he's fighting somebody who's a lot bigger and stronger and meaner than him. And uh, Roach immediately just catches the railing and just uses it to throw uh, Locke out of a window. And this is where we get to the line that I think is sort of the most important line of, uh, of the series. It really kind of breaks down our themes because Roach says, you're going to have to break if you want to learn the truth. The truth the rest of these maggots can't begin to comprehend. You see, pain isn't a punishment. It's a teacher, a liberator. Because once you've had the worst day of your life, nothing can ever touch you again. And that's kind of Roach's really nihilistic philosophy. And that's really the secret to him as a character, is he has seen so much horrible things. I'd argue that he's had just as much uh, suffering and heartbreak as Spencer and Locke. But whereas Locke has had an entire lifetime to grapple with it and create his own coping mechanisms, uh, Roach has, has endured all of this hardship in a much more accelerated period of time. And it's really done something to him. Uh, it's sort of broken him in a very profound and horrifying way. But if you ask Roach, you, he might say that the scales have fallen from his eyes. Um, like he says in here, you know, uh, once you've gotten it to be as bad as it'll ever get, it will never get worse than this again. And that's sort of a, a freeing thing for him. And that's very much his uh, kind of nihilistic philosophy. Um, every person he hurts, he thinks he's doing a favor. And uh, he's trying to find not just a way to hurt as many people as possible, but a way to bring them to the breaking point so uh, they can be, um, you know, just as impervious to pain afterwards as he is. Uh, unfortunately uh, for Roach, um, he then gets hit by a car. Uh, we see that it's Belinda in her news van. Uh, she's been following Spencer and Locke around. Um, she says, uh, you know, it's I didn't follow uh, you all night just to watch my 11 o'clock lead get ki killed. Um, and, you know, Locke, who has had the crap kicked out of him, he still gets up and he's like, all right, all right we got to stop Roach. Uh, but we see mercifully that uh, Roach is down for the count. Uh, we see, uh, you know, Melinda uh, helping Locke up and she asks, so I get the exclusive since I saved your life, right? And Locke just says, give me a minute to catch my breath. And then we're going to have a talk about setting healthy boundaries. And I think, uh, you know, that sort of counterpoint, I, I've always had a soft spot for reporters. Uh, my uh, first job out of school was a, as a reporter. And uh, I feel like um, they are a constantly underappreciated part of society. And they, you know, at their best, reporters are really working hard to sort of uh, do their best for their community. I think there's a, a real uh, heroic streak to Melinda. And I think it's one that's um, a little untarnished or a little less complicated than Locke uh, with all the baggage that he has. But these two together, I mean, there's a, a lot of risk, but there's a lot of potential reward for these two characters being together. Um, you know, the question is, is sort of how is this going to shake out? And that's when we uh, we cut to a prison, and uh, we see uh, based on the uh, the TV news side that uh, you know there's not been a, a whole lot of uh, answers about Roach's rampage, and that's a little troubling in and of itself. 
he's been captured, but nobody really knows what his real plan was. And that's something that Roach talks about here is that it's thrilling watching them act as if they know all the answers, but no matter how deep they dig, they'll never know the real score and they'll never see what's coming. And that's when we see that Roach has actually carved out a blueprint to the prison in his on his wall. And that's when he turns and he says, but I've been doing all the talking over here. What do you think, Major? And that's when we uh, cut to our last page and we see um, Locke isn't the only one with an imaginary friend. Uh, we see that uh, we see that uh, Major, uh, sort of the horrifying, half-burned, half-destroyed corpse of Major, has still been floating around giving Roach orders. He says, it's time to think big, soldier. It's time to think mighty goddamn big. And, you know, so much of this series has been about um, giving Spencer and Locke a villain that's worthy of their time. Um, a lot of the thoughts that I thought about with our first arc was, uh, you know, what are the kinds of threats that police officers face? The idea of doing a crime organization uh, is, was felt like a very accessible way to tell our first story, especially because it was self-contained with uh, Bill Watterson's iconography from Calvin and Hobbes. But by kind of bringing this across the funny pages, uh, I thought, you know, what about the uh, idea of terrorism, for example, uh, sort of this larger than life, almost unimaginable kind of destruction? And I thought, what if we put a face to that? Uh, how out of their depth would these two street level cops be if they had to deal with, uh, you know, a street full of car bombs or uh, or rocket launchers or maybe even a tank? And so uh, with his military background, uh, Roach was sort of this perfect um this perfect uh, uh, counterpart for him, uh, both in terms of being bigger and stronger and meaner, thanks to his training and his hardware, but also coming from a very similar place of, uh, of pain and suffering and violence and PTSD. And so it made uh, the perfect kind of sense to uh, that Roach is not a lone actor, that we do have uh, his own sort of uh, manifestation of his mental illness, um, you know, and it's not quite as uh, benevolent as, as Spencer is. And so, you know, the, the, the thing that I've, I've said about this series, it's very much our Empire Strikes Back. It's very much our Dark Knight. Uh, and I don't invoke either of those trilogies lightly. Um, I, I say that Roach is kind of uh, what if Heath Ledger's Joker had survived the events of the Deer Hunter. Um, he is kind of uh, the unstoppable force. Uh, compared to Locke's immovable object. Although I think Locke is going to realize that uh, he's going to be very movable um, given uh, how, how hard Roach is going to hit him. And uh, so this, this, this character, you know, he, you know, I, I see that R Locke and Roach's battle, it feels um, it's not just sort of a hand-to-hand -hand combat and it's not just for the sake of the city and it's not just for the sake of hero and Locke's future and, and, and everything else. But, you know, Locke ultimately comes from a place of hope. Um, his creation of Spencer, his sort of sustained relationship of Spen with Spencer has been kind of a, a, a promise, if you will, that things could get better, um, that maybe someday he could live a normal life and that maybe someday he'll get out from all of his sort of emotional wreckage and will kind of transcend his scars. And Roach is the opposite. Roach is the kind of guy who um, he he wallows in it. He's a he's a, a creature of pain and suffering. He um, he owns it, and in a way, he draws his strength from it. And the fact that he's trying to sort of turn as many people like him as possible, whereas Locke is trying to avenge, uh, you know, uh, 
people who have been in his in his situation. Um, it's very much sort of night and day. It's uh, hope versus nihilism, and that's why I see uh, uh, their battle not just as a physical conflict, but just as much as a war of ideas. And I think Spencer and Locke are going to have to dig in very deep if they uh, if they want to find a different answer for their future and whether or not uh, their partnership can actually uh, uh, be viable for the real world. Can Locke be uh, a cop, a partner, a father, um, given his sort of untreated mental illness, or is you know is his hopes for normalcy always doomed to fail? Um, that's something we're going to be talking about a lot in Spencer and Locke 2, uh, which will be uh, available at your local comic shop uh, by the time uh, you hear this. And um, yeah, I, 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 uh, there's plans that we have in mind for these characters. Uh, we're very excited about it. We wanted each arc to kind of stand on its own two feet in terms of sort of its, its unique flavor and its unique tone. And while our first arc was very much in the vein of street-level crime noir, now we're injecting uh, uh, old-school war comics into it. So I think uh, the Spencer and Locke universe is only getting bigger from here, and I'm excited for people to see where it goes from here. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.